0: Shoulders of Dwarves, a weekly podcast about role-playing games. Hello and welcome to episode 37 of On the Shoulders of Dwarves, a weekly podcast about role-playing games and the gamers who game them. My name is Eran Aviram.
1: Hello everyone, I'm the mystery, not Uri. I am Dassi, Eran's wife... Um, I have other qualities, which everyone wants me to say, but for for that matter, in this case, I really love mystery novels and stories, and that should be more relevant to this episode than other things, I think, in this case. And I'm Uri's substitute for today.
0: And today we shall be discussing mysteries, yes! We have a lot of things to say about mystery plots and mysteries in general, because not everything mysterious is necessarily plot-related, but we will not be doing so today. We will try to focus on some of the main basic things that we think most GMs, mostly, although we'll be saying some things for players as well, should think about when coming to create a mystery plot. Because I think there are two things that most GMs are concerned about when approaching a mystery the first is, don't they need to like create a gazillion, bazillion little details and clues and stuff and connect all of them? And that sounds like a lot of work. And the second, how are we going to make sure that the players actually go through all of this and not like get stuck immediately after like the first clue or the other way around, discover everything in like a second. And then this whole campaign that I thought about beforehand will become a two session thing and I'll feel horrible. We have a lot of things to say about these two things and many others, so let's begin.
1: Okay, um, to begin from my perspective, I've never actually run a uh, mystery campaign. I've played a brilliant one um, that I ran, uh, GMed for us, entitled The Enemy Within, which was for the previous edition of Warhammer Fantasy, and it was fantastic. And I love reading um, mysteries, and I love watching mystery series. So those are basically my qualifications. They're very vague and not very convincing, but that's what we have. Uh, now, one of the things I can speak of, just from my personal point of view, is when am I satisfied and when am I disappointed? I am at my most satisfied, and it's quite rare, when every detail that was relevant came together and yet I could not guess the resolution in advance. Now that does not happen a lot because I'm very, very used to this genre, so you ha- someone has to be really good to hoodwink me, but when it happens it's amazing. I'm half satisfied if I guessed the result in advance, but it still works. And I'm absolutely disappointed if it looks like it was pulled out of someone's ass, which happens very, very often. Can I say ass on, them, on the Shows of Dwarves?
0: You can, but it's really important that you differentiate the world so I can cut it ass. more easily. <laughs> We should first go through some things that we will not be talking about. For example, we will not be discussing ontological mysteries, which is a very interesting kind of mystery, but it's not what we are doing here. An ontological mystery is when something about the world itself is unknown, and in trying to discover it, people go through various stages of revelations of new and new things going on. Some examples are Attack on Titan, which is great, and Lost, which is not great. And there are many, many other examples. But creating an ontological mystery requires a lot of work, first of all, by creating the ontological mystery itself and then building from that point forward. And today we will want to discuss some other options, some other ways of creating mysteries. Like, for example, out of thin air.
1: Perhaps we should begin by defining what is a mystery as a campaign. So I think what differentiates the genre from any other kind of campaign is that what you really want to do is uncover the solution. You want to uncover information. You don't want to save the princess. You don't want to kill the villain. You don't want to save the world. You want to find a solution. Now, maybe finding the solution will lead to all of these other things, but the main point is you are missing a crucial bit of information about something, and you need to reveal it. Usually that something will be a murder, a series of murders, a burglary sometimes, you know, very obviously like Sherlock Holmes. And that's at the center of the story. Now, why am I saying this? Because it seems to me that in this episode, we're going to focus on campaigns of that sort, where revealing that information is at the heart of the story.
0: There are two things that are important here. First, yes, we'll be talking mostly about campaigns, but there are, of course, one-shot mysteries, which are usually in a closed location, like everyone is on a ship, Someone got murdered. Who is on the ship? The person that murdered. Who is the murderer on the ship? Or everyone is in a museum. Someone got murdered. Who is the murderer in the museum? Et cetera, et cetera. And these sort of mysteries can deserve their own episode. There are so many things to say about them. There's a different thing to say about the players themselves. Because when you arrive at a campaign of this sort, of course, the, the basic thing is knowing that you want this sort of thing. Like, as he said, there's a main thing going on in a mystery plot that is not... For example, killing a dragon, or discovering a new land, or whatever. So it's important for all of the players to want to participate in such a thing, and it's quite important also that they'll create characters that fit this sort of campaign, and obviously use a system that fits this sort of campaign. Such a system can be Gumshoe, which is pretty good for these sort of things. There's Fate, Call of Cthulhu, uh, and even Shadowrun, which has a lot of rules for fighting, but the fighting tends to be very dangerous there, and a lot of the time you'll spend in trying to uncover things. Legwork, it's even called, though. And one of the players should really uh, be the kind of person that enjoys taking notes. Because in this sort of game, if the players are unsure what happened, like, three sessions ago, or they don't remember something, it might be crucial to their enjoyment of what is going on right now. And note-taker is important to make sure that everyone around the table are on the same level regarding the amount and importance of clues that were gathered so far.
1: So absolutely note-taking is very important. Um, at least one player should be sitting there with a tablet or a notebook or however you enjoy taking notes and writing them down and also be willing to review them depending on how intense it is and being willing to do the previously at the beginning of each session. It should be something that other characters are willing to listen to. And I think that should be part of the expectation. So you're not exactly playing the same kind of lighthearted game if you're only there to to kill orcs, for example. It it does need to be something that you're interested in. You like details. You like solving details. You like having details come together.
0: Unless you're playing a one-shot. Like, in this specific adventure, in this specific session in the campaign, we are on a ship and someone died, etc., etc., etc. And that can work. But that's not what we're talking about today. One final thing to say about the characters, they should all have a stake in what's going on. I mean, you can play a group of detectives, general detectives that just go around and detect stuff. But it's a lot more satisfying and a lot more useful for the GM. If, for example, the player characters are related in some way to the accused, or if one of them, of course, is the accused, or if their uncle died and they are the one that should inherit the mansion where the death just happened, etc., etc. Something that will make them part of it fiction-wise in a way that they will not be able to just get up, take their belongings, and move to the next town like an adventure in another sort of campaign. Let's talk a bit about the mystery. Generally speaking, the mystery itself, we think should be pretty straightforward. That is not to say that you get to know exactly what it is by the moment that you gather all the clues, not all, but it does mean that you should, the GM, should probably play by the rules of your setting. If you're playing Shadowrun, it's quite probable that the big bad is, for example, a dragon that wants to take over a corporation. If you're playing Cthulhu, it's quite plausible that the big bad is eventually going to be revealed to be someone who is trying to summon an ancient god. If you are playing in modern times, it's quite feasible, it should be feasible, that the answer is anchored in realism and not in, suddenly, for example, magic. Once we've all decided on the internal consistency of the rules, of the land, of the world in which we are playing, we should really keep to them, because it's part of the fair play, I think, of the whole thing. It sets the boundaries of what to expect, both... Mystery-wise, like if I can see something on the floor and can, I can smell this sort of thing and, ah, it's gunpowder and now I know it's gunpowder and there's gunpowder in the world, etc. That's one thing, but also narratively, if I'm playing in a Cthulhu game and eventually the person that is trying to do a horrible thing is, I don't know, the president and he's actually just trying to blow up the world like in a spy thriller... Okay, but where's the Cthulhu thing? Where's the mythos? I was expecting something narratively as a player from the moment I joined this game. So, generally speaking, you should play by the rules.
1: I mean, it's absolutely fine if the president is trying to summon Yogshatoth sothoth because he wants to rule not only the United States, but also the world. Just make sure it is
0: somehow connected to the Elder God is the only thing I would add. But you can also subvert. Maybe not in this sort of play field. Maybe the thing that we just said should probably remain the same, but you can subvert other things. Like, for example, it seemed to have been a suicide, but it must have been a murder. And we research and we go and when we um, accuse people, etc. But eventually, it revealed it was a suicide. It should be quite satisfying, of course. One of the basic things about any mystery is that, you know, the resolution should be satisfying. It should fit all of the clues that we've gathered and that we think are relevant in a way that we weren't expecting. We weren't expecting it to be a suicide because it was so clear that it was a murder because this is the sort of thing that happens in a mystery, etc. But it was a suicide and it was an interesting and emotional suicide. Again, it should be satisfying in various ways.
1: One of the problems of making a mystery story is that people are very, very aware of tropes and of mystery plots. People know that it's always the butler. People know that um, if if there's a very suspicious elderly lady who, is, uh, who hated her husband, she probably did not kill him. In this case, subverting can actually be quite nice. Maybe it actually is the old lady and she actually did kill her husband, but not for the reason we expect.
0: Let's talk then about, I think, the main thing we have to talk about, which is details and evidence. First, I want to say something about the malleability of evidence, of facts. Everything that we are doing on the table is fictional. Nothing is factual, nothing actually exists. This can be used for the GM's advantage. For example, the classic example, if the players came up with a solution that is better than the one that the GM has, you should probably change the solution so it will fit what they just said. Maybe not exactly, but maybe quite close, because that will be more satisfying to everyone, including you, when eventually it will be revealed, because yours just wasn't as good. That's fair, that happens a lot because there are several players on only one GM and nothing in the big GM book of rules says that you must be the best at creating every story ever told. No, some of your players might be better and let them help you by just hearing what they have to say. But in order for this to work, you as the GM should be open to malleability. It's something that we've talked about a bit last episode when we discussed... Subtle railroading, and we said, for example, that if there's going to be an ambush with the goblins, then it doesn't really matter where you go. Ah, oh, we go to the cave. Well, there's an ambush in the goblin on the way to the cave. Uh, well, we go to the forest. Well, there's an ambush with the goblins on the way to the forest. There will be an ambush with the goblin. This is I said in the last episode, this seems unfair and uninteresting and unfun in specific kind of games. But in these sorts of games, in mystery games, and when you retroactively justify it, it is, I think, necessary. And that's how I run most of my games. I have a very basic understanding of what is the mystery, a very simple sort of plot and several players and organization and the like that might have wanted to do things and what they might have actually done. And then I start playing, and as we go along, both facts that I create and that the players suggest, or plans that the players suggest, become factual by me deciding that they are.
1: And the nice thing about malleability is that you can let players feel very satisfied when in fact they give you the solution. So, I mean, you see this a lot in television series, actually, where, of course, the internet is full of all kinds of theories, and... Where the writers are smart, they adopt the theories. Where they're not, they don't adopt the theories, and then the actual resolution is very disappointing because the theories were actually better. So definitely leave enough openness for the players to chime in and to feel smart when they realize that their solution was really the right one without ever knowing that actually you adopted their solution.
0: Let's talk a lot about details. Tassi, what do we have to say?
1: I think the key to any mystery, especially if you're not planning every stage absolutely and fully, is super-saturation of detail. That's how all mysteries work. You have an enormous, ridiculous amount of detail, and only some of it is relevant. And the only difference between a role-playing game and an actual story, or television episode, or film, is that in a role-playing game, what details are relevant might change later on, rather than you deciding it in advance.
0: I think many GMs are so afraid of having the players reveal everything in two moments, that they hold all of the cards too close to the chest and do not reveal any details. while What they should do is the opposite. They should reveal so many details that the players are now drowning and must decide what is relevant and what isn't relevant. Being stuck is frustrating. Not having enough details, enough leads to go with is frustrating for everyone because the players don't know what to do. And the GM thinks, wait, I've, I've told them everything they need. Why are not they not doing anything? They should always have some lead pushing them somewhere new. City of mist by the way, has a lot of good suggestions about it because it's it's a game about detectives and detecting stuff and investigation. I'm the editor of City of mist so just so you know. But there are several simple tricks that everyone can use, like, for example, the free clue rule. Whenever a party arrives at a new scene, there are at least three things there that can lead them to other scenes. Somewhere else. It can be to the police station. It can be to the morgue. It can be to the murdered victim house. It can be to their mother's house, Whatever. Something that will make them go somewhere else because generally speaking, investigations move from place to place until you arrive at the place where the bad guy is currently residing. So I think the main difference here that is really important is between information that is correct and information that is relevant. Because the details that we've talked about to, to give to the players are always correct. You give them everything that is correct. You don't, you don't lie to them. Like, for example, yes, there's the stain on the floor, and there's something dripping from the ceiling, and there's this sound of frogs from outside, and all of these are details. But which of them are relevant to the murder? That's the question. And this is a thing you can use whenever someone calls for a role. There are a lot of roles, or I don't know, whatever system you're using, but there are a lot of investigation roles usually in these sort of games because these are the main ways for players to gain information. I roll for it, therefore what I get from it is true because I use the rules. Spending a clue point to gain useful information is very different from asking a GM, what do I see around here? Because in the first case... The rules say I must receive useful information. And in the second case, the GM can tell me whatever they want. So, for example, useful information is she is wearing a shirt with a strange emblem on it. But is the emblem important to this case? It's important. It means something about her. It might have been something that you've missed. But now I'm saying, I'm telling you, this emblem is important. Nice. Important in what way? Does it mean that she is part of a club? Does this club have anything to do with the murder? Does it just mean that I'll be able to get her to tell me some other things if I use specific wording, if I call someone in the club and ask them for a favor, something like that? It might be just something that leads me somewhere else. It might not be actual clue that will give me an actual detail that is super relevant to the current case. But my problem, usually... Is creating these details. Like for example, if the player's roll for something, and what can you tell me about her? And I say, well, she's she has a shirt. Nice. But I should also invent now, right now, I need to right now invent the and there's an emblem on the shirt. But as a GM, I am usually not that good in inventing this sort of thing. So how to create details?
1: If you're immersed enough in, in detective stories, you always you'll have a million examples. It's u- it depends on the environment, so it's always useful to have scaffolding somewhere. An odd smell wafts in the air. The wall looks a little bit crooked. The tea states, tastes funny. Anything that has to do with the senses and the environment is very good, because you can have a million of those and only two of them are actually relevant. It's nice when the suitcase is battered. The hair is a little bit fuzzy and frizzy. Find a million stuff like that, and then later justify the solution with, the, with some of those details, those that work out well for you.
0: I usually think about the physical location. I imagine in my head the physical location where the characters currently are. And when a player asks me, what do I know about this and this, or what is strange about this and this, I think about that physical image and try to see what I can maybe change about it just a little. So it become a detail that I can then tell. Like, for example, there's a portrait hanging about the old lady. And when they ask me what's about the portrait is interesting, well, it looks like someone you talked to a while ago. Uh, Udi. It looks kind of like Udi when you look at it. Now, it could mean nothing. Maybe they just think it looks like Udi. But it could be a link of some sort to something, I don't know. I'll retroactively justify it later if I need to, if the player decides it's important, if it becomes relevant in some way to the story, etc. In the modern world, there are a gazillion such things you can use because we actually live in the modern world. Uh, You have a phone. The phone battery ran out. Someone is not here in time. Well, the tube is late for some reason, if you live in London. Otherwise, it's the train was late or something. (laughs) There's a strange smell of dried paint, etc. In a fantasy world or in a sci-fi world or whatever, it might be a bit harder to come up with something on the spot because we, I don't live in a village right now. I can't imagine a street in a village out of nowhere. So like Dasi said, either read a gazillion stories, which is always, by the way, a good idea to get familiar with the tropes, etc. Or have a list. There are gazillion lists on, for example, drive-through RPG of things that exist in whatever setting you are currently running. I always think about, for some reason, barrels. I have a lot of barrels in all of my streets, medieval streets. There are a lot of barrels. When someone asks me about uh, a store, I say, yes, there's a grocery here or something like it. Next to it, there's a barrel maker. Because I really like barrel makers. I think it's an amazing profession. You create barrels, that's what you do. And I so so I have barrels everywhere, and and I usually ask myself, what is in the barrel? The answer is mostly fish, by the way. Most of the time it's fish.
1: But that can actually be very useful, because barrels can do lots of stuff. They can make horses trip, they can have people hidden within them, they can burst into flames. Actually, a barrel (laughs) is quite a useful thing to have in this situation.
0: There's a trick that I use a lot of times, but not in this case, of turning to the players and asking them, well, what is in this scene? and have each player say something about what is in the scene. The reason I don't do it with mystery games is that if one of these details then become relevant, the players know they created it. And that's not a bad thing, but a lot of players will feel cheated. They will feel as if there was no actual mystery to discover. Instead, there was just this game they played with me of discovering and rediscovering clues, of uncovering clues that I just planted a moment before, or even, you know, decided there are clues several sessions later, which is what I usually do. And it's really important for me that the players don't feel like it, even though this is actually the case. This is what is happening in a lot of the games that I run. It's important for me that the players feel as if there is an actual mystery. There are actual facts that exist that they are revealing in some way. Which is why I generally prefer running mystery games based on pre-published adventures. There's just one type of clues that we think GMs should generally not use, and that's red herrings. A red herring is when something seems very relevant and is really not. It leads you somewhere that is just has nothing to do with what's going on around here.
1: Oh, I suppose it's quite difficult to decide what a red herring is if you're just um, spilling loads of details and seeing what the players hook up. But I suppose try to make sure that they don't just go off on a tangent, (laughs) just so that it doesn't feel frustrating, as we said. The worst thing is to feel frustrated. So if they are going in the direction one didn't expect, there needs to be a way to steer them back.
0: Unsurprisingly, City of Mist has an excellent paragraph on red herrings, Um, which they defined as a misleading clue that points the crew in the wrong direction, that is, at a dead end. That being said, a red herring is not every bit of information that the characters receive that is not directly relevant to the case.
1: Okay, so what do you do if you have a group of really, really smart players and they seem to be closing in on your solution way earlier than you intended and they're missing out on a lot of the fun? So one of the things that you can do when they roll, say, a knowledge check, or a perception check, or an insight check, and they roll really, really well, is to give them information that's true, but that's not going to immediately spoil it for them and give them a solution. But some sort of information about the situation, the character, or the world, which is fun to know. So for example, and I'm pretty sure this was made up by Iran, I don't think it was in the original campaign, Uh, We we rolled really well on a lord and his servant, and we discovered that the servant is in love with the lord. It was not relevant to the solution at all, but it was really interesting, and it gave more flavor to the world and to these characters, and led us to do all sorts of things to help their love story or hinder their love story, which we would not have done otherwise. So that's a way of sort of... Of solving a problem of of players that are really, really good with knowledge rolls, but you don't want to immediately give them the solution too early.
0: This is interesting because, from my perspective, this is not why I did it. This was a redirection. You were very suspicious about the Lord. You thought the Lord was actually this evil person of whatever that was doing evil things. And you thought that the servant had, was in on it in some way. And you knew that there was sort of strange relationship between the two of them. And when you discovered that actually the servant has the hearts for the Lord, you immediately thought, ah, well, this is what is going on here. And sort of dropped the whole, the Lord is actually the evil guy, etc. It helped that there were other options. I mean, the Lord was not the only person that you thought might have been the evil guy. There there were other options because, as we said before, give more details. Give more suspects. Have more characters around for the players to think about them instead of the only one person that exists. So... In this case, it was a redirection. You decided that this is a story that is going on here. And because there's a thing going on, there's no other thing that is going on. Because we have discovered the one thing that is going on. Because that's how most of us usually think about these sort of things. Because it was the Lord that was the evil guy. And I didn't want you to just immediately realize it. Another trick that is very useful is embedding the mystery in politics. Because again, it gives you a plethora of options by increasing the number of possible motivations. If someone is dead in an apartment, and one of the suspect is his, for example, brother that wants to inherit, for example, a lot of money from their father, then we kind of know who did it. But what if the person that is dead was also important, for some reason, for a political faction. Suddenly, there are so many other people that might have wanted to kill them. And there are different motivations. Why is he dead becomes a big question. It's not longer as obvious as it was moments before. So, have a lot of things around. A lot of people with a lot of reasons to do a lot of things.
1: One of the nice things about politics... Is that you sometimes get to influence the world? Here I'm talking about our own campaign, our own campaign, the enemy within. One of the nice things is that as a result of discovering what we discovered and the way that we discovered it, we and we influenced who would be elected as the next lector, which is basically the um, parallel of I don't know uh, governor, governor per se. So it's also a nice way for the heroes to feel that they're actually influencing the bigger world, which is also quite. Quite nice.
0: I think it's also really good in mysteries in general, because mysteries don't have to be about saving the world, but because it takes so long to discover a thing, the stakes should probably be quite big. There should be something big going on. It's not, ah, who stole the crayon? He stole the crayon. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Yay, it should be about something big that is happening. Maybe it starts small, but it becomes big. Again, in City of Mist, every criminal act on the street can eventually be connected to an avatar walking from behind the scenes on time to change the face of the city. And getting there is a whole campaign. But you should probably have something going on. And relating to this, there's something called, I think it's the Sanderson rule or Sanderson's first rule. Which is there's always another secret. Brandon Sanderson, who is a writer that I really like, really enjoy his writing, has the rule that says there's always another secret, which basically means that whenever you uncovered something, there's still yet to be uncovered. Yes, you realized why this person was actually running for mayor and what are his plans for this city, but you don't know that he is actually a part of an Illuminati-like conspiracy spanning this entire nation. And when you discover that, and there's a whole campaign to discover the Illuminati and who's in the head of them, you only then realize that he is in fact the heir to a pharaoh-like dynasty of half-alien sort of people that have been ruling the world from the dawn of time. But after you reveal that, etc., 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 it becomes... Ontological, It becomes, there are things about this world that are actually different than one you thought about. If you go deep enough, you probably shouldn't. There's no reason to go so deep. But there should be something there, even if only for you, the GM. There should be another layer. Because, first of all, the players might reach it. And second of all, it allows you to create all sorts of things, interesting things, going on through the game that might seem puzzling to the players. But because there is something connecting them, there is an actual truth connecting all of them, the players will at least not feel as if you're just throwing random stuff at them, but there is something going on. We just don't know what it is. And it's beyond the scale of this campaign. Okay, any last words you have to say about the topic of mystery plots?
1: I suppose the main thing is to make sure that the solution to the mystery was something that was planted from the beginning. So even if you didn't actually do that... When you do reveal the solution, retroactive justification is very, very
0: important. And in order not to contradict yourself, you should probably do some note-taking as well. The GM, I mean. Yes, there's a player doing note-taking. And yes, maybe they even let you see all of them. I mean, Dasi shares with me all of her note-taking, and that's great. But the GM, in order to keep straight everything that happened and not create new stuff when there's no need for it, generally speaking, I think that about... Half point of the campaign is where you should stop creating new things and instead start tying back together everything you've created. You should have something written down so you will know what was created and what you deemed important and what you now deem important after what happened in the last few sessions and change your mind entirely about what actually happened.
1: In that sense, um, you may want to use the structure set forth by the enemy within, which I think was set forth very well for Mystery Campaign. There are three acts. The first act is setup. You show the mystery, you show the main characters, and you give the, the general basic information needed. Act two, development. The characters, some of the characters are not who you thought they were. You discover much more details, and again, you have the recurring characters. Act three, only recurring characters, no new characters, and wrap up. So by the middle of Act 2, you should know almost everything that you needed to know, except for a little bit more, in order to be able to solve the mystery in Act
0: 3. And now, it's time to take the load off. (coughs) This is the part of the show in which we talk a bit about our own role-playing games. Dasi, what have we been playing?
1: Uh, We have been playing the campaign Fifty Fathoms. Um, in which we recently arrived at Kyria, a kind of totalitarian um, police state, in which we managed to attack three pirates and um, incapacitate two of them, after which we parlayed with them, uh, gave them our captive, and earned a load of money while um, avoiding a mutiny on our own ship.
0: And it's interesting because there was, there was combat. There was a lot of combat. Most of the session was combat. And we're using Savage Worlds, which means that everything was quite dynamic. And I think pretty interesting combat. But it ended with the three main villains running away. Two of them are basically almost dead, but not completely dead. And they managed to run away. And Duncie said that she felt that the players failed. In this combat. Why?
1: We didn't kill them all.
0: So killing them was the objective?
1: Well, at the very least, especially, I mean, in our particular campaign, there is a setup whereby by killing one of the villains, you get a very rare magical um, ability of made in the form of a fruit. So if you don't even succeed to kill one of them, then
0: you lose the entire, a big part of the portion of your purpose in fighting them in the first place. Now it was interesting because, from my point of view, it was really hard to beat these guys, and I didn't think it was possible at all for the players to do so, so them running away and not just subduing the players in some way, which was what how I thought this might end um was was a pretty good conclusion player wise. I came out of it with an understanding that you guys and I will look at combats quite differently in this game. For me, when we face named villains, I think of it like in an anime sort of thing. They will run away. They will survive it. You might beat them, but they are still here for next time. That's how it goes in anime. Anyone rarely dies in anime.
1: Well, I mean, that's absolutely fair. Um, It's just from us we want to get something out of the combat. So if we don't... And eventually we did, because eventually we parlayed with them and we got money out
0: of it. Exactly. I mean, you think you got quite a lot out of it.
1: Yes, but we didn't know that at the time. So at the time, it didn't feel like it. It felt like we were very badly injured and we didn't get anything because they ran away.
0: Okay. So I think maybe this can be a start for me to understand how to change this perspective for next time. So you'll feel better about either letting people run away, which might happen, or just ending a fight without everyone dying, which might happen. Again, the the odds were against you this time. These guys are really powerful. And we'll see how I can make sure that everyone... I mean, we all had fun, a lot of fun, but we'll see how we can make sure that everyone next time won't feel like, for example, that you failed in some way because there was no failure.
1: That's alright, we had a great time and we we got money out of it and we we felt very satisfied at the end of the session. Just specifically at the end of the combat we felt that we did not the outcome was against us in in, I think all all ways that were relevant to us.
0: Well, I need to think about that for next time. But that's enough. Everyone at home I hope you get to play a lot. But if you don't, then I hope you get to listen to us. We're at DwarfCast.net. We're on the shoulder of dwarves everywhere else. And if you want to send us an email, do so at show at DwarfCast.net. You can also walk out in the street and shout to the skies, "Oi, Iran! I have a question. Oh, I have a suggestion. But we won't be able to hear you because you didn't email us, which is the way that you should, you really should contact us. Talk to you again next time, next Monday, hopefully. And now, we'll say goodbye, each of us in our native languages.
1: Later!
0: On the shoulder of dwarves is shared under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial form. The intro and outro are taken from Silly Fun by Kevin McLeod. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3. Find us at wolfcast.net and follow us on Twitter or Facebook.